So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership, and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Thanks so much for passing by and clicking play. And I really hope that you're going to enjoy today's show because it's a fascinating insight into a pivotal part of business strategy at the moment purpose and sustainability. While many organisations are talking a good game, today's guest is leading the way in delivering a good game. This is the recording from one of Sporting Edge's recent online community events for our membership. This is where our members come together as part of our subscription offer and it's full of entrepreneurs and execs around the world that use our content to inject some fresh thinking into their meetings and personal development. They have access to our digital toolkit of video insights from all the leading thinkers and performers from around the world and also to these interactive events. So you can find out more at sportingedge.com. So my special guest is Fiona Morgan who's the Chief Purpose Officer at Sale GP. She had a really sporty upbringing as an elite tennis star in Scotland and then trained academically and professionally as a lawyer. She's had a brilliant corporate career with jobs with Westfield, SAP and Team Sky Cycling as well as Sky Broadcasting as well. She's the mastermind of Sale GP's Action League and this is an incredible balanced scorecard if you like for not only winning on the water but also delivering some incredible projects off it. And this sport is like the Formula One of sailing. It's those massive catamarans that fly around the harbours and we see some brilliant tactics around places like Chicago and San Francisco. Fiona's had a stellar career and has been shortlisted for a number of sustainability awards for her career as well. So she's a trailblazer and I'm sure you're going to be fascinated about how Fiona and her Sail GP team are changing the focus from the normal win-at-all-costs model to winning so that many people benefit. So let's dive straight into the event as Fiona describes her hectic few months as I caught her between the end of one race season and the start of another. Sail GP, we say we're the most exciting and fastest racing on water and we operate our business that way. So we've ended a season. So we ended season three and we've started season four. So we had three weeks in between um, when you obviously need to get your data, do your reporting, get the boats ready, We've announced a new team. Um, So we have 10 teams now in the league. We have a German team and Sebastian Vettel is an investor in that. So it's been quite exciting bringing Formula One, like you said, into sailing and looking at the potential um, of that. And then we're off. We're off in season four. We're already, you know, into L.A. in two weeks. So it's been busy. It's definitely hectic working in a startup. Very different to to what I've done before. Got to be very dynamic. And there's a lot of uh, pace involved. Sounds great. So, so let's zoom back in the timeline to your sort of earlier years growing up. Were you always fascinated by sport? Were you were sort of into sport from an early age? Yeah, I feel a bit old, don't you, nowadays thinking back. But um, I'm Scottish uh, from Aberdeen and sport was part of growing up. My dad is a big advocate for sport. He uh, works with um, Tennis Scotland, Sport Scotland. He really believes sport has this power to make you a better individual and build social skills. And it's just good for life. So I brought up with Formula One, tennis, golf, you name it, badminton, cricket, 
uh, watching and playing that. And so it was a big part of my life and I suppose my social life. Um, and then I probably realized you can actually work in it. You know, there's a business in sport behind it. So it's definitely been a big, a big driver of my passion really for the sport, for watching it and playing it. Um, but I was a failed tennis player. I think I told you that. So it's definitely not no Andy Murray. Um, a lot older than Andy Murray, but um, but did play with him, but uh, not not at that level. So how did you make those first steps into business then and, and carry that passion for sport into the corporate world? Yeah, so uh, growing up, my family were lawyers. Um, and so I was kind of had to do a law degree. Um, I was trying not to get in, to be honest. I was hoping I wouldn't qualify to get into law, but I did. So I went to Glasgow. My sister and brother went to Edinburgh. And when I was doing that law degree, and it sounds really cheesy, um, Jerry Maguire movie was on and kind of the whole IMG and sport business and agent kind of was just coming to the forefront. And so I realized my legal background actually in sport um, could have a role. And they set up the core of arbitration for sport. So I did my dissertation on that, on sport and the law. How does it work? What's the potential? What are the issues reputationally? And so just got into this world of how do I have a career in something I love and so I think it was my parents thought I was mad being in Scotland studying a law degree wanting to work in sport was not you know a traditional way um and so yeah that's where my passion to work in this space really started. So did you have a strategic view about your career or was it sort of <laughs> side steps and and make it up as you go? Yeah make it up as I go I i, I strategically I, I'm the kind of person you know when you do insights I really I very much believe in right and wrong I'm very values driven and I definitely everything I do I want to have an impact I, I want to change the world and I know that sounds cheesy but that's just who I am as a person I always go into something to make it better so I wanted a career in sport and as a woman in sport I think we'll come on to talk about it I realized very early on you're still in the minority and so what I wanted to do is be a female leader in sport to show that you can and to have a more inclusive kind of leadership in that space I wanted to have an output I was thinking always thinking what can I do to say what I'm going to make my kids proud of what am I going to achieve in my career and then it was a jungle gym it was not strategic so got my first job at IMG in um, in Miami because I was studying out in the U.S. I did a master's in the U.S. after my law degree in sports management um, because the U.S. was where sport kind of and business was really working working well and yeah, I, I decided, you know, this is kind of, you know, what, what I want to do and, and took it from there. And every job I've gone instinctively, I'm not sure that's the right career decision or if recruiters are on this call, they'll, they'll think I'm very, very strategic. But I went with my instinct. Do I want to work for this company? Do I want to wake up tomorrow and think this is a brand for me? This is a fit. And is there a huge opportunity? Can I actually add value? Can I change something? I cannot plod. I could not take a job where I'm plodding or staying in a lane. It was like, can I have impact? Even in my junior jobs, it was thinking working for a brand as a big global sponsorship portfolio. Can I have an impact? Am I working with the best sports in the world and athletes? So that was how I how I did it. So not strategically, but always on impact. And I've actually loved every single job. I'm passionate. And I think that makes you better at your job if you really believe in it and love what you do. Yeah, and I think we've seen a lot of leadership research now, aren't we, about people, especially the younger generation. I'm not a massive fan of this. Millennials think like this yeah. and, you know, the, the older gang think a different way because I think everybody should feel passionate about their job and have good okay. conditions to work in and, and feel rewarded and have flexibility. So I don't think it's necessarily uh, just for the, the the Gen Z or whatever. Um, but did you did you get a sense then that you'd got to drive through some adversity as a, as a female working in that male dominated environment? How did you how did you keep your tenacity and your confidence when times got tough? I think it's my Scottish grit, to be honest. Um, and again, the kind of person I am, I love challenges. So when someone says there's not a lot of women in sport, I say, right, here we go. I'm going to prove that women have value in sport and can you know be leaders. So I think that drove me harder. And actually, you know, I do hate talking about this, but it's really important because I am a mentor to about 10 young women in sport and I'm on the Sports Pro Media New Era program. And actually, it's still a problem. People think it's not, but it's still a problem. You know, I still have worked in very male environments. I've worked in Formula One. I work in cricket. I work in sailing. You know, I've worked in tennis. And 
although we're making great progress, there's still a lot of cultural kind of issues. Um, and as a woman, still, sadly, I still feel I need to I need to do way more than men. I need to always overachieve. I need to always prove my value because you walk in a room and people, they don't expect that you understand sport. They don't expect that you're a leader. Um, even a few races ago, I had a really funny, not funny, it's quite a disappointing example where some, some a guest to an event that I was actually chairing asked me for something, um, asked me to help them with something because something wasn't working, which is fine. But then I'm on stage and just the way they talked to me and the way they made an assumption about me was just, just couldn't believe it in this day and age. Someone was assuming that, you know, that I couldn't be a leader in cell GP or I couldn't be what was my role at that event. And so I hate, I don't want to sound hard done by because as a woman, I feel very passionate and it's all about, I, you know, being inclusive and actually opening up about it. But, but the good thing I would say is the best champions in my life have been men. The people who've championed my career, they're not women, actually, they close the door because there's a lot of kind of, especially in, in my age, I think there was not many of us. So it was like protective. I want the big jobs. I don't want you. I don't want to collaborate. I don't want to help you. And I've had that. And actually, I had the most incredible male mentors at Sky, at Westfield, and they pushed me and supported me like no one, no one else into my career. So and they're all in sport. So it's, um, you know, I don't want to feel too like, you know, kind of women's rights. It's all about being inclusive and just supporting each other and actually realizing there aren't enough women making um, at decision making in sport. And that doesn't make us inclusive, doesn't make yeah. us right. We, we've interviewed you know almost half the library is is female and it's something we're passionate to to keep that balance and and whenever I get asked to do a speech on female leadership or the high achievers that that we've interviewed I always ask how many men are coming to it or how many yeah. you know how many men are going to be on the webinar that we're working with a client because often it's that stakeholder group that that needs yeah. challenging if if it is from uh, you know that imbalance, but but in terms of gender equity in sale GP, um, you know obviously we can imagine it's an incredibly physical sport and and a new sport that's coming in. I've got this image in my head of those huge six foot eight guys grinding, grinding, yeah, sort of sails up and down. How can we make sure, or how can you make sure that um, there is that balance that you you know created in your own career? How can you create a platform for that in this sport? Yeah, it's probably the biggest opportunity we have at CellGP and something that we haven't talked about and, and we will. So sailing culturally, there's been a huge gap, probably 15 years that female at the elite level have not got on these boats, these foiling elite F-50s, we call them, that's our boats. And that's just culturally, it's just there hasn't been experiences, they've done well in the Olympic classes and then it's kind of, there's been nowhere for them to go and obviously it's been a male culture, a male, you know, they've been asking their male colleagues and then they just get on the boat and there's no opportunities for women. So it is like getting a woman in F1 car. So that's what I really would love, you know, help to do is we want to get female athletes driving these F50s, which will be phenomenal. And we're inspiring young girls that they can get on these F50s, which are the fastest boats on the water. And what our job, I suppose, at CLGP, we're not a governing body. We are really kind of a, a, an event, you know, we're running an event. And so we're trying to kind of shorten that gap. So give female athletes more time on the water, build simulators so our female athletes can get hours up and then they'll have the better opportunity to get on the boats. So we want a mixed elite boat. So we don't want to put quotas in. We want our female athletes, which we know they can. And actually the physical barriers are not as much as you think. You know, when you're talking about the grinding position is probably the only position. Other positions, actually, there's no real physical barriers. We do need to adapt the boats a little bit um, to make them um, easier. Obviously, again, they're adapted. They're engineered for men. So we need to look at how we engineer them so they can be more inclusive for, for any athlete on there. Um, but there aren't those barriers. It's just about time on water. That is all we need to solve. And then you'll see people like Hannah Mills taking over from Ben Ainsley. And I, you know, I have a daughter, I have twins, they're seven. And I, my daughter saw Hannah on the boat for the first time. And she said to me, mommy, I could go in that boat. And you need to see it to believe it. And we really are part of that kind of inspiration for young people in sailing, which has not been inclusive. And we need to own up to that and then move forward. Brilliant. Well, we can see your passion shining through. And I have, think your daughters have probably got a very bright future. Uh, but when you look back at some of the projects you've been involved with, I know at Sky you were sort of in the corporate and then moved over to Team Sky on the sort of cycling side. 
Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those projects and, and what you're most proud of from that period? Yeah, probably the first um, moment was back in my first job. And I think we, we you know, I, I worked at IMG in the States, in um, near Miami, and I worked for tennis player Chris Everett. So imagine having Chris Everett as your first boss. That was tough. But I learned, I mean, she's an incredible female. And what she taught me was probably, you talk about women in leadership, I think she probably taught me a huge amount. I have to thank her for making me who I am. You know, that kind of, you know, bravery. Because as a tennis player, it's mental. You know, you're on your own in the court. And what she taught me, um, yeah, I definitely need to thank her for that. But as part of working for her, I helped run her foundation, her charity. And so we raised money. And we actually ran our own women's and children hospital and a drug abuse foundation. And all the funding that we did went into that. And without us, there was nothing. And meeting the families and seeing the impact you can have through driving investment in sport was incredible. So that was a proud moment where I really saw this intersection of how sport can do things differently, how you can actually, you know, change the world and, and do things with the power of sport. Um, so that's a proud moment early on in my career a long time ago. Um, but probably going to Sky um, is where I really felt that all of my experience, my jungle gym came together and, and really made me what I can achieve with a great team and a great brand behind it. So at Sky, my first job was running cycling. So how do we, the investment Sky was making was incredible. So you had Team Sky, the elite level, and then we had Sky Ride and um, British Cycling. So how do we make that all work together? How do we re get return on investment for young people, for participation in cycling and for the brand at Sky? And so I took that on and we've been doing a good job, but probably hadn't really kind of from a business um, driven it forward. So that was the first corporate moment I would say outside the US where I felt I'd made a difference because my background my legal background my commercial my marketing my comms my content it was how do you bring all that together to deliver it's a campaign so you're really a campaigner I feel like that's my role is to campaign for good and be be the person that brings it all together you've got Sky Sports News you've got Sky News you know we put on Bradley Wiggins our record we broadcast it on Sky we created that event with 19 management. So we did all these things and we got nearly 2 million people on a bike um, cycling 12 times a year because of Sky. And I think we did inspire a nation through Team Sky and Skyride. And, and you see people with bibs and with their Team Sky kit on. I still feel very proud to have played a part of that journey. Um, but Jeremy, Derek and Sky were incredibly, and Dave Brailsford were incredibly you know, committed and we were all in it together. Massive collaborative approach. But we had one goal, you know, to get UK back on on their bikes and everything we did, we we did we focused on that. So I'd say that was a very very proud moment. Yeah, incredible time, and I think Sky was pioneering in in many ways, wasn't it? And I, and I think that's sort of a an interesting build on that question that I think a lot of perhaps the last decade has been about almost winning at all costs, and you, you yeah. can imagine this sort of we have to have the medals, we have to have the awards, we have to have the sort of number one status but this idea that success is broader than that it's deeper than that it, it has yeah. you know much more far-reaching impact doesn't it across society we see you know somebody cheating or, or you know somebody taking drugs or some scandal financial you know scandal and it, and it sort of echoes across society not just within that sport so I guess it'd be interesting to hear from you how you balance that um you know performance and that ability to be excellent and and be outstanding as a performance or as an organization but also have that broader societal and environmental impact that can be great as well you know they're not mutually exclusive are they definitely not and that's something i feel passionately about is showing the value of doing good and purpose in sport it's not separate and I think business are probably redefining performance. You'll see executives and businesses, they get their bonuses based on carbon reduction, DEI, hitting their targets. And that's in probably, a, I don't know if that's mainstream yet, probably in business, but it's getting there. So you can hear about that and, and you feel that momentum. Sport is not doing that. We're not redefining performance. We're all about medals. You know, most sports are like, how many sponsors do you have? What revenue are you bringing in? And, and, you know, who's winning the race or what are the medals and, you know, what cups are you winning? Like you said, but actually your fans, your partners, your suppliers, your broadcasters, they want more from you and they expect more from you. So for me, it was about redefining performance in sport. And that's the whole strategy I would say of sustainability here at CLGP. It's how do we re redefine that conversation and, 
look at things differently. And that's why we set up the Impact League, which is all about incentivizing good behavior. So we incentivize our teams here, our athletes, to be good. That could be what, you know, how are they helping gender equity? How are they helping? Like I talked about our women's pathway. What are they doing in that? How are they driving innovation and sustainability? How are they reducing their carbon footprint? How are they using their voice to advocate for good? What are they eating? So that is all based on behavioral science. Because you redefine performance, you have to incentivize good behavior. Um, so, yeah, something that I believe passionately about, and I do think businesses and sport need to understand that. I mean, we were just talking about there's a lot of discussions about where sport race, who sponsors sport. And these discussions aren't going away. They're going to get bigger because fans really do require that. This new world we're in where climate change is an issue. There is problems about DEI and inclusivity. There, there's bigger problems in the world that sport really is a showcase for you know look at the world cup and we need to take that in take responsibility for it and use it for good don't worry about being criticized actually what can we do to change the way we operate to help inform educate inspire um, our fans and push partners i mean we can influence lots of stakeholders through sport yeah it's great and i think we've seen that first level haven't we where consumers might just almost you know, uh, vote with their credit cards to say we're not going to buy that product anymore because we don't believe in the ethics of that particular company and a share price might drop after a scandal. Um, and I think now what you're talking about is that funding that sits behind sport. It's almost that slightly more opaque layer to yeah. say, well, all these big corporate brands on the, you know, the sponsors board at a big tournament, actually, you know, the, the fans might be saying, well, we don't agree with that, whether it's gambling or you know, the, the sort of um, high carbon businesses or wh whatever it might be, that's the kind of choice that we might see coming through. But I love that parallel uh, performance chart that you've got with the Impact League, where yes, you're the fastest boat, that's great, but this is the uh, ranking for the social and environmental impact that you've, you've made as well. So I've got a, a video that I can share from your uh, most recent activity. So I'll, I'll just, um, this is a, a video that talks about the Impact League, as, as Fiona was just talking about. At SailGP, competition on the water is only half the story. The Impact League is a first of its kind in sport. A competition running alongside the racing that tracks the positive actions the teams make to reduce their carbon footprint and help inclusivity in sailing. This season, we're getting even bigger. We're supercharging the Impact League in season four, rewarding teams for bigger, bolder, more impactful initiatives. Teams now have more time for standout activations that leave a lasting impact and will be scored just four times per season. With scoring being conducted by a star panel of industry experts, youth campaigners, and purpose-driven sports stars. Culminating in the Impact League champion being crowned alongside the season champion, with the prize money going to the team's purpose partner to drive impact together. We believe in the power of sport for good. Every action makes an impact. Great video. Um, and I'd love to hear how, I think the Aussies won the last uh, race season, didn't they? But who were the best yep. behaved from a purpose and sustainability? Who got top billing for that? Yeah, the best behaved. There's, it's been a journey with a lot of teams, but in season one, New Zealand won the Impact League. Um, and season two is the Den Danish team. So obviously Denmark, a very sustainable country, and they, um, they, it was right up the wire. They beat the New Zealand team to the top. And actually, you know, they were in tears. It meant as much to them as winning on the water. And actually, when you sit with their performance directors or their CEOs, they, they have a strategy. They begin the season saying, I want to win the Impact League. It's not just, I want to win on water, let's think about the Impact League after, because it has such a commercial value. You know, media sponsors, they come to us and they want to hear about the Impact League. You know, um, foiling, you know, it's still a, a bit of a niche sport and, and, and uh, we need to make it mainstream and, and drive that audience viewing. But the Impact League has really been the only, we're the first in sport. So it's really helped us as a USP. And so the teams really care. I mean, behavioral science, get professional athletes in another league. And I tell you, very competitive. So, so tell us a few, um, so we can try and translate this, tell us a few practical projects and activities that yeah. some of the teams have done off the water that's helped them to score good points in that area. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, but I'll say before when we launched the Impact League, because it's based on performance, athletes like Ben Ainsley, I remember in a meeting, the CEOs, I had to present this to the CEOs, can you imagine? So everyone, we've got a new league and you're going to have to perform differently. You know, the, you know, the CEOs were all looking at me thinking, what is she doing now? And when I presented it, you know, Ben said to me after, I was so worried you were going to distract from performance. You know, they were all like, this is too much. It's an added value. You know, it's too much on top. I can't do this. And now the conversations I have and the value, like you said, and how committed these CEOs are and the sponsors involved has just that shifts in, in three seasons, you know, that, that behavioral science and mindset shift. But, um, but teams are doing lots of different things. And what I love to celebrate is small plus big impactful projects. So the criteria is very robust and it has to be. It's externally audited because again, when you get athletes to do something like this, need to be transparent and need to be measurable. So teams have done small things like I talked about, you know, the Danish team have, have kind of changed their boat a little bit to make sure the female athletes can grind. So it's just even the height of the grinding machine or the way that the boat's set up. So that makes that boat more inclusive. So if one team has an idea, we then put that throughout the fleet because we didn't talk too much about CellGP, but it's one design boat. And it's not like other sports. It, we centrally manage the boats. And so the data shared. And so it's an even playing field. So in the Impact League, if a team comes up with an innovation, we can roll that out throughout every single boat. So the impact's incredible. And then other sports, other sailing events look at us. So, so there's been things around kind of the, the, the Women's Pathway program. We got the first ever Paralympians, um, parasailers onto an F-50, which again is showing that anyone can get on these boats and giving accessibility in sailing is an issue. So it was giving it a platform to talk about what we can do through the Swiss team who really want to make sailing more accessible. The British team, because we're obviously on British soil, have done a lot in clean energy. So they have um, put solar panels on their team base. So a bit like uh, in the pit lane and, you know, the garages in Formula One, all of our teams have their own bases. And this is where they put their F50. They have their training. This is where they kind of live at the event. They've put flexi solar panels on their, their roof, which means they're off grid. So it means that they reduce their impact, which sounds easy. It's not easy because where we race, you have to set up in different locations as suppliers. That's taken a season for them to do that, as well as they have a rib. So one of the boats that they have is solar powered. So they have solar powers um, to make sure that rib is run on clean energy. So again, they've really thought through how can they reduce their impact on the world. Um, there's been lots of really fun innovations of thinking about materials. So there's the French team who are very innovative. That's, you know, they're, they're quite, um, they sometimes do live up to the stereotypes of their countries, but the French team really believe in sustainable innovation. So they're using bamboo thread on the boat instead of plastic. So they look at these marginal gains in sustainability and then that gets, you know, again, put through the 10 fleet. So it saves so much waste. And then if that can inspire other sailing events, that could have a massive knock-on effect. So there's lots of examples, but that's probably... Um, a few that are relevant, I suppose, for everyone. Brilliant. Yeah. And I love this idea that, um, you know, that there's brilliant innovation being forced as a sort of balanced scorecard, if you like, but then you're sharing those innovations so that everyone can benefit. Um, I was going to share one of the insights out of our platform um, just so we could get one of the other experts that we've interviewed. Um, so um, I've got my playlist actually to show you that this is where the playlists live. So if we click on this, I've actually created a playlist called Purpose and Sustainability. Uh, and basically all I need to do is just select each video and play it from there. But this uh, insight is from Mike Barry, who is the head of sustainability at Marks and Spencers. And I thought this point was actually really valuable in terms of balancing um, that need for competition in a very uh, commercial space, but also collaboration. So this is Mike Barry's insight. There's a great change coming for leadership in the next decade. The last 20 years has been about winning and winning alone. You know, beat my competition. The future's about absolutely doing that, but collaborating as well. Let me give you a practical example. Let me just talk about the shift from a meat-based diet to a plant-based one. On the surface and on the shelves, Marks and Spencer and Tesco's are trying to beat each other. They both want to sell the most delicious plant-based alternative alongside their meat offer to excite the customer to win market share. Brilliant. Let's compete to deliver the best product. Behind the scenes, Marks and Spencer and Tesco's are looking at each other and saying, but we both use soy in our existing animal feed supply chains to create the meat that we sell to our customers. Neither of us can create a unique 
Marks and Spencer and Tesco supply chain that's perfect and different from everybody else's. We have to collaborate to work with the Brazilian government, the world's biggest commodity producers, the shippers that bring it to the marketplace, the animal feed con converters in Europe. Marks and Spencer and Tesco, big competitors, have to work together. So one day you're competing, one day you're collaborating, and you've got to be comfortable with that. So 80% of the time I think of the future is collaboration, 20% is about competing to win. That 20% is really important because you'll still need that stimulation drive in the marketplace. If you do want to find any more uh, content in the library, again, if you just type in those keywords like purpose or sustainability, then you'll see here, you know, um, the All Blacks, we've got incredible professors, we've got sporting leaders, we've got um, Tammy Erickson from London Business School, we've got Langley from um, the military. So lots of great insights in there for you to learn from. But coming back to that point about, I love that analogy of, you know, fighting on the shelves almost and then collaborating backwards. What are you doing as an organisation to connect and learn from maybe other sports or what can you share into sailing to make that uh, have a bigger impact rather than it just be, this is our new product, this is our new competition, we need to stand out and keep all the good ideas to ourselves? I'm a big believer in collaboration, um, 100%. And I think sports, what we worry about is partners, the commercial reality of like everyone's fighting for sponsorship and um, race venues. But me and my team, I think sustainability cuts through that competitivism because we all, it, sport and sustainability is a small world and we all talk and we share learnings. You know, my team are going to Formula E next week. I've invited all of um, every from football, to, you know, I speak at the Premier League all the time. We all share learning. So I think there's a very collaborative approach in sport and sustainability because we all know we need to go quicker and learn from each other. The Impact League, we've just launched a digital home of the Impact League with Cognizant, our um, fan engagement partner. And all of the data from the Impact League is on that home. And again, we can probably send it um, after to this group. We want to share data. We want people to learn. Why are we doing it if we're not helping people? So our fans change behavior, other sports. And one of my KPIs this year is to get the Impact League into another sport. So I spoke to the UN Sport for Climate Action Framework. So that's kind of our big framework in sustainability where over 300 global sports have signed up to targets to reduce their footprint and we get together. And I said to them all, who wants the Impact League? Because I will give my time and get it into your sport. So that's something I'm working on at the moment. We've had NASCAR, Formula One, golf, tennis, you know, a National Park Association, Scottish football, you know, random and big um, organizations come and look at the Impact League. And now I'm thinking about where do I go first? I also have a big aspiration to get it into schools because imagine incentivizing. I think sport in school, you need to redefine performance because, again, all they care about, my kids are at school and it's about who's the best at running. Who wins the swimming gala? When actually it should be about who's, you know, who are the most improved in swimming? What have they learned? What have the what skills have they built through that through that sport? And actually, how are they acting? Are they going, are they cycling more, which means they're not in the car more? How are they being more sustainable? Are they being more inclusive in at school? It shouldn't just be about winning. So I think this whole concept of redefining performance can go in businesses, in sports, in schools. Um, so watch this space. Uh, Impact League will be going out of CLGP and that was always the vision is how can we help incentivize and show sports what to do it's challenging in sport because it's a big commercial framework so you know Formula Ones of the world and football have a lot more I suppose um, constructive commercial than CLGP we're a startup we own most of our teams and so we've had the control and my role at, at management team to be able to embed it and, and do it differently so then I feel a responsibility to help those learnings. I feel lucky that I'm in the position that I can do the Impact League. I can operate this way. I have a team in probably the biggest team in sustainability in sport. And there's no other chief purpose officers in sport, I wouldn't say. I mean, we could Google it, but I don't think there is. So I feel, again, how can I share my learnings? What have I learned in being in this position? What would I do differently? Um, and we have an annual report as well, the Purpose and Impact Report. And it's very honest. My forward is sustainable growth is challenging. You know, you have to try, but it is difficult. And there's lots of things that we need to own up to and collaborate to solve. So could, um, I can imagine the FTSE 100 being replaced both in a parallel column uh, with the yeah. uh, Impact 100. Um, Why not? I mean, consumers, I would prefer to know that. I would be investing in in the most sustainable bank. It's just you don't know sometimes. Consumers need that data, don't they? And need legislation or a framework to help them. 
So what what would be the if there's people listening that are thinking of taking this across, apart from getting you on speed dial, what are sort of two or three steps that they could take to try and develop more of this impact kind of thinking? So the impact league, you need to think about what as a business or a family, it could be your personal life. What's your material impact? What can you actually do differently? And what, what will that look like? Who's your audience? So who are the people that you need to change your behavior? And then how would you incentivize that? And it doesn't need to be that robust. I mean, behavioral science, it could be one thing. You know, in school, it could be um, our, we do a school's impact league and our school's actually making sure that the, there's um, equality in the sports they give. Are they giving, you know, um, is there accessibility in the school sports they're giving? Are they thinking about gender when they do, um, when they're setting up their school framework? And that could be the incentive and every school gets marked on that. It could be one thing that will help drive change in that stakeholder group to those to your fans so what would your impact league be is what is the impact you want what what's the big impact you can have and who's your audience and how would you do it and and richard made a point in the comments that um, you know we we don't want people faking it and a lot of sort of greenwashing has gone on you know with with some quite big famous stories so how do we avoid that or squash that yeah greenwashing is very interesting um you have to take this seriously and your license to operate is key. So you can't even campaign or do an impact league if you haven't got your house in order. So we need to run a sustainable championship. So that's knowing our carbon footprint. That's also understanding our issues from a DEI perspective and having a strategy and a committee and a governance board. And then thinking about once we've got that, our house in order, we're running sustainable events and we're operating as a sustainable business. Not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but you have to have that structure. You can then campaign and kind of have your big impact so it's difficult there's no legislation as you know globally so I think people if you're in a business you need to really make sure there's a robust governance um, and you have to call people out I think the world needs to be challenging and say if you're in a company and they're campaigning and actually they're not diverse and the culture is bad you have to people have to stand up for it and say this is not right but I do think not, not just saying that's why you need a role like mine. I mean, I'm the chief conscious officer of a business, but I'm adding value because actually my area is the biggest growth area of cell GP. So it's not just, I'm there going, don't do that. That's bad. Naughty you, you know, I'm not there as a school teacher. I'm there to go, right. Is this the right thing to do as a business? You know, is this a good business decision? Not just about profit, about people and planet. Like, is this good? And what opportunities can we have? Where's the potential growth? What do our audience want? So it's really having somebody who's at that management team who's thinking differently and challenging the business to be better. And nobody's perfect. We won't always make perfect decisions, but as long as you are transparent and you have an informed decision. So say a sponsor, you know, sponsorship is really difficult because the sectors in sponsorship are not the most sustainable sectors. And so you have to have open discussions. You have to do due diligence and say, who are you partnering with? Because they're a collaborator with you. So whatever, whoever we work with, I need to feel comfortable that I want to work with them. And they're not going to be perfect. But as long as I feel they're committed and I've done due diligence and I understand the opportunities and I know the risks, that's what you need to do. It's really that kind of openness and being transparent about what you're doing and why. We'll take a couple of questions from the uh, audience, so please do type them into the chat function and, and I'll come to those in a second. But I just want to pick up on that, uh, not being a school teacher, but <laughs> having robust debate in the boardroom about, you know, people, planet and um, profit as well. Yeah. Profit, yeah. Um, so, so how do we get that, you know, three way balance? There's always going to be a tension, I guess. Somebody yep. wants short term uh, financial gain from a big sponsor that might not fit the sort of ethical framework that you've got. It may be something that's all good, but maybe has a slightly negative impact on the planet or the people. It's not as inclusive as you might like it to be. So what's your approach to handling those discussions? Because I'm sure all of these things come from great awareness, uh, but also sort of understanding different perspectives and compromising. So What's your approach to getting these decisions across in the boardroom? Yeah, I think when I started, I did a bit of a, um, I did lots of education at SOGP and to the management team about the bigger picture, climate change, DEI, like what, what make sure people do understand the bigger issues here at play and how that affects us as a business. We're a brand. And then I did a big piece on reputation. We all know reputation is key. 
And if you don't understand reputation, how quickly it can be taken away, that is hard to have these discussions. So I think at management team, you're the custodian, the reputation, which is a commercial growth of your business. And so for me, I, I have a whole framework of due diligence, which I do, and it kind of comes up with a score. So we look at better planet, um, better sport, better planet. Better sport is about DEI and sailing and our strategy and what we're trying to do. Better planet is about clean energy, climate action. What are we doing in environmental space? And I score where we race. I score sponsors. And then the score comes out and it says potential opportunities, potential risks. So we put that into the discussion. So say you're a sponsor is X amount of money for a global deal. This is the purpose score. And then we have a debate. And we talk about the implication if you make that on reputation, because there's a value to losing reputation too. You might lose a pipeline of 50 million pounds of sponsors because you make one short-term decision. So again, I think it's just having that debate and having that data and that kind of due diligence is what's important. Um, and I guess you've got to be courageous because if you make a stand, you know, if you stand for something. Yeah, you have to live then, and breathe it. Then you will attract people who follow that. And, and if it is a you know, this holistic benefit to society and, and the environment, then who doesn't want to be part of that? And I guess that's got much more commercial upside in the future than it's perhaps had in the past. But um, And one point is staff, actually, people. There's such a war for talent, isn't there? And everyone in business must feel that. Your people are your organisation. I feel massively um, responsible for the people we bring into CLGP. Over 80% of people come here for purpose because they could go to any sport. You know, sailing, we're a startup, we're a bit risky, we're new, we're different, and but they come here for a purpose. But that means they, they're coming here. If we make one bad decision, and Paul Pullman, a lot of people talking about this conscious, you know, unquitting, people will, people will quit because they don't believe that we're living and breathing our purpose and values. So you will attract great talent, and I, you will, because the people we have at CLGP are phenomenal from the biggest sports in the world, and they want to work here, and their passion, their expertise is making us grow. But if, I, if we make one bad decision in that informed decision-making at management team, you want to work with that sponsor, we could lose a huge percentage of our workforce and our talent. And that's bad for business. So it's yeah. good and it's bad, so you have to live and breathe it. And I do believe it's how you act and show up and the decisions you make are critical. That's yeah. stopping greenwashing, you know, yeah. back to Richard's point. And any of your values or your mission statement or whatever it is that we broadcast, ultimately that's an attractive proposition, but it's a promise of an experience, isn't yeah. it? It's a promise of an environment. And while it might be a strap line or, a, you know, a great video, or whatever it might be, if people don't experience that consistently through every fiber of the organization, then it's going to be in conflict. And, and that's yeah. where that integrity clash comes and, and people might, might walk. So it's either self-reinforcing or it can pull it apart but sam asks a question in the chat um which sporting rights holders do you think are delivering the best sustainability focused partnership opportunities oh partnership opportunities um i think water sports are probably the most sustainable sports in the world because we're, we're at one at nature you know we see the the impacts and we just get it but from a from a partnership perspective i this is going to be a bit grim i'm not sure anyone's doing it really well yet I think we're at this cusp. We're really kind of at this. This is when big purpose partnerships, when sponsors are not going to care about branding and logos and media AVE, they're going to work with the sport to help solve a problem, to make the new chase. You know, we're looking to make a Coast Guard boat. So we could at SoGP make the Coast Guard boat tomorrow. And if I was a sponsor, I'd rather do that than stick my logo on something, have tangible impact that you can say you did and then talk about it authentically, sustainably. So I'm not sure there's a huge amount of sustainable partnerships out there. Hopefully CLGP will be leading the way and we've got some big partners coming. But off the top of my head, I mean, Angel City and Forest Green Rovers do a good job. I think, again, they, they're a great example of this is your mission, values, purpose, and you live and breathe it through everything you do, from what you eat at the stadium to your sponsors to your um, clean energy suppliers. So probably Angel City. And if you haven't heard of Angel City, they're in LA. It's a women's football team, a women's soccer team. Um, and Forest Green Rovers, obviously, um, the football team, the greenest football team in the world, um, are probably two that are doing it really well. But big rights holders, not sure yet. Anyone's really leaned in, lent into this yet. Tell us a little bit more about Forest Green Rovers, Fiona, the, the sort of kind of choices and things that you see around the stadium or the 
transport for the athletes or what, what have you seen there? Yeah, they're brilliant. I mean, even the, the name of the road onto their stadium is called Another Way. And when I went there, I just couldn't believe that because actually what they're showing is you can have a football club and run it a different way, do it another way, do it a different way. So they do everything from, you know, the choice of food is all vegan at the venue, but they don't talk about it. They don't make a big deal about it. They make it delicious so people will have it and they don't, you know, you wouldn't even notice. And actually you're kind of that, that behavioral science and mindset shift. They have charging points. If you have an electric vehicle, you get the best car parking spot at Forest Green. And they incentivize ticket holders to have sustainable travel. Their sponsors, as you see, all have a sustainability or a net zero target or a kind of a, um, they're delivering a solution for the ground. So, yeah, I think it's a good example of filtering everything through what they do. And if you don't follow them, do follow them because they have great um, partnerships and insight and leading the way, I would say, in this in this space. But again, they have a smaller voice because they're not a Premier League club, you know, and so that's where I hope some of the bigger sports, you know, the Olympics, you know, football they lead into this because the power of them fans are tribal fans follow and no one actually listens to we've got some very depressing insight from mit that says people are not listening to scientists and politicians they're not they're, they, you know we've lost trust they've completely lost trust so actually athletes voice is the highest it's ever been about people listening to us so we have this voice and we have to use it for good so we really have to think carefully about the way we're operating our sports and what our athletes are telling their fans because if football told fans to change to clean energy in their households, they'll change a lot quicker than any marketing campaign or any, any energy companies, you know, campaigning or lobbying. And that for me is, is what will um, help solve the world. Fashion and sport, we're the sectors that will help engage consumers in changing the way they operate. Brilliant. Yeah, do type any more questions into the uh, chat function. Um, we've got another one from Claire saying, thanks so much for an insightful, for such an insightful presentation. In terms of the impact league, what were the commercial levers you used to attract the funding? So it doesn't actually cost a lot of money, the impact league. So I have a project manager and then it's based on how we want to operate anyway. So you're incentivizing what we're doing already. So eating less meat, traveling more sustainably, looking at clean energy um, innovations. So there's not actually funding need needed. There's prize money which actually a lot of the sponsors and host cities gave us. So, cause they want to be involved in the impact league and help give money back that goes into impact and NGOs. Um, and then there's money for auditing. So it's tiny actually budget to do that. We are securing partners to help us kind of supercharge that. So there will be sponsors of the impact league and then they will help drive more money into impact. So have hackathons and funds for innovation, which again, will go back into doing good and change behavior. So, it's a small commercial budget to operate the Impact League, really small. Um, but then now it's um, how do you commercialize the Impact League? So have sponsors to pay for rights. And we have sponsors who want to buy rights to the Impact League, not CLGP. They don't even want the sailing rights. They just want the Impact League. So we built this really you know, commercially driven product that people are attracted to because it's different and it's sustainable and it's got measurable impact. They can prove what they've done because of the investment. So it's copyrighted. It might be, but I'll share it because I want to collaborate. I'll share it. I would share it. But I mean, the concept, you don't just call it the impact league. It's behavioral science. It's incentivizing yeah. good behavior. And if everyone, if every sport in the world has an impact league, I will die a proud lady. My kids hopefully will be proud of me. So They'll yeah. Sailing off, off into the sunset. Um, so where do you see Sail GP in, you're saying, is it four years it's been going? Um, yeah. Where do you see it perhaps in, in 10 years time? Yeah, it's interesting. We're doing a lot of this work at the moment is what, you know, what is CLGP going to be in the future? I think sport is going to fundamentally change as a sector because unfortunately the world is changing and people won't be able to travel. Global events will not be able to go on like they are. And we've got our head in the sand. A lot of big global sports, you know, have their head in the sand and pretending this won't happen, but we won't be able to travel like we are, you know, emissions are too high. So I think for CLGP, it's going to be adapting our format. I think logistically, we need to operate radically differently. We can't be flying 400 people around the world. We can't be relying on 400 you know, um, staff to operate an event. We can't be having this big infrastructure in a city because that's got a footprint and a cost. I think we need to be leaner in the way we operate. We'll need to think about logistics. How do we get around the world? What's the most sustainable route? And we've got a big idea coming. So watch this space. Um, and I think there will be my biggest shift in sport is scope three emissions or your emissions, obviously your travel, your fan travel, your supply chain. 
So at the moment, every sport, when they go to an external venue, people want us to drive footfall. So if, I, if we go to, say, Cadiz in Spain, their biggest KPI for CLGP is to get 50,000 people to watch our race and travel into the city and drive tourism. That is going to have to change. So that, I think, CLGP will be at the forefront of how do you add value to a city without tourism and carbon footprint of people coming into the city? So that, to me, is where sport's going to go. That's going to change. And we're going to have to get more efficient. We're going to have to grow more sustainably and, and radically change the way we operate. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I, and I think I read somewhere that you'd got the referee or the umpire was, you know, dialing in remotely from home and you yeah. know, scoring the race. So uh, maybe that's a, a yeah. something. Remote operations, why not? They actually yeah. have better, they're better being in our broadcast site in London. So we don't travel before Formula One. We did remote broadcast operations. Now we do remote umpiring. You know, so our umpires are not at the race and they don't need to be because they're watching the footage and they're actually making a better decision. So it's all these things. It's how we need to operate differently as a sport. We need to reduce our footprint, be more efficient and just think differently. We've got to stop being stuck in the past of tradition. Tradition's great, but we need to go forward. So I really hope that you enjoyed this seat inside one of Sporting Edge's community events. And remember, you can join us for the next one at sportingedge.com. Just look out for our membership and digital toolkit. If this is a topic you're keen to learn more about, then I would definitely encourage you to follow Fiona on LinkedIn and also look out for the updates on SaleGP's social media accounts. They have some brilliant content. And that's the reason we've opened up this content for the podcast. So we're really keen to spread these positive messages of how pioneering businesses are making purpose and sustainability core to their approach. So please do pick up the share link at the end of listening and share the show and tag me in as well as some of your network. It'd be great to see you extending the reach. And do drop me a note if you want to talk about how your business could develop a psychological edge or develop its leaders. We're supporting many of the world's leading brands at Sporting Edge and you can contact me via hello at sportingedge.com. So I hope you have fair weather and plain sailing until we meet next time. Good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. 